better. Thank you. verse 1 here for a minute. This verse has always bothered me. I mean, I mean, I know this is Greek, but before means what? Before. It means before something, right? It comes before. I had always believed this was a Passover meal. I don't really subscribe to that anymore, and I'm going to tell you why. And I'm going to ask you to be a Berean in this. Um, search this out for yourself. Don't just take what I'm telling you to be the gospel truth. Search it out. You, if it doesn't sit right with you, then look it up for yourself, and we can debate this. But I do not believe this is the Passover meal, and hopefully as I unpack this, you'll see why. So Jesus could not have eaten a Passover meal with his disciples because he was on the cross as the Passover lamb being sacrificed in preparation for the Passover. We have to remember when we're reading the Bible that the Bible is not written to accommodate our Western culture. The Bible has a culture all of its own. It's basically a Mideastern culture, but it's a biblical culture. The Bible doesn't follow our calendar. It follows the biblical feast. It follows its own calendar. The culture of the people is not our culture. And prayerfully, hopefully one day when you get to go to Israel, you're going to see that culture. It's quite different from ours. That culture was developed over years of following the law and obeying the Torah. For instance, a day in Israel is much different than our day. Their day begins with rest and then work. Our day begins with work and then rest, right? Not for some, it's rest all day long, but for most people, it's work and then rest. So it's quite different. Their day begins at sundown, <clears throat> which is around 6 o'clock. <clears throat> but as, if, if, you look at a, if you look at a time, um, if you go on an Israel website and you look at the time of the day when the sun sets and the sun rises, it's not, it doesn't always fit neatly into a 12-hour, 12-hour package. As a matter of fact, sometimes, especially when the days are a little longer, it's more 13 hours of daylight and then the evening. So it's, when, it's at sundown, which the time changes all the time. So we'll, just for argument's sake, we'll use 6 p.m. because that does fit neatly into a nice little package for us this morning. So their day begins at sundown ours begins at sunrise and the reason that their day begins at sundown is found in Genesis chapter 1 God said so the evening and the morning was the first day the evening sundown began the day now in Hebrew the name for sundown is Ereb and it means sunset so at the sunset at sundown the day begins and that's going to be an important point to understanding all of this the other thing that will be important for us to understand is their cultural habits, the cultural habits of the day. Passover was a 24-hour, one-day event, if you remember that from the book of Exodus. And it is based out of Exodus in chapter 12. God instructed them that night to kill a lamb, right? Remember the story? Kill a lamb, an unblemished lamb, at twilight. Twilight means between two evenings. So it means between 12 noon and 6 p.m., which would be 3 p.m. Anybody know what happened at 3 p.m. in the crucifixion? Interesting, right? Anyway, they weren't to eat. They were to, to prepare the lamb, slaughter the lamb, 
paint the doorpost with blood, and then they were to eat the roasted lamb at 6 p.m. that evening, which would have really been the beginning of the new day. So they ate the, the lamb at the beginning of the new day with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And so they ate the meal, if you remember, fully dressed, ready to go when the Lord told them to go. That was the Passover meal. So God instructed them afterwards to do this every single year from that point forward. They were to celebrate the Passover feast on the 14th of Nisan. And then they were to also celebrate another feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that began on the 15th of Nisan, the very next day. And that was to last for seven days. So Passover was a celebration of them being saved by the blood of the Lamb. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread celebrated their exodus from Egypt. Passover lasted for one day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven. So it was really an eight-day feast. And what's important to note is that many of them, many of them, when they talked about this feast, spoke of it as all one feast. They either called it the Feast of Unleavened Bread or they called it the Feast of Passover, but they never really separated the two. See, with me so far in this? There's going to be a quiz. So here's why I believe that this meal is not the Passover meal, and neither were the meals described in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. First, none of the Gospel accounts, if you go back and look at them, speak of a lamb being served during that meal. So I want to look at Matthew's account real quick. Matthew says in his Gospel, in chapter 26, verse 17, Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? So remember, they would often refer to the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread as one continuous feast for eight days. This would, as Matthew's describing it, would be Thursday evening into Friday. Friday would lead to the to the arrest and crucifixion and the trial. The trial happened Thursday night, the arrest and crucifixion. The arrest happened Thursday night, the crucifixion on Friday. And to show that this is what they were doing, Mark adds a very important po uh, point to this whole thing. He says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go prepare that you may eat the Passover? Notice what he says. On the first day of unleavened bread, they killed the Passover lamb. They didn't kill the Passover lamb on the first day of unleavened bread. They killed the Passover lamb on Passover. So it clearly tells us that they, in their own vernacular, they, in their own culture, considered the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Passover as all one big feast. And John's Gospel helps us to see that Jesus could not be eating the Passover meal with his disciples, because he says this in chapter 18. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. And it was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the Praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they may eat the Passover. The Passover meal had not occurred yet. They, Jesus was brought before Caiaphas, he was brought before Herod, and then he sent back to, Pil uh, to Pilate to be sentenced. They had not eaten the Passover meal yet. They would not go into the praetorium to be among the Gentiles because they feared they may be defiled and wouldn't be able to partake of the Passover meal. This time frame would have been Friday morning after that trial in the evening. Our final clue is, our final clue that this is not the Passover meal is found just a few verses down in the passage of Scripture we read this morning. In verse 29 of chapter 13, John says, For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, Buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So they thought the reason for Judas getting up and leaving that meal was that he was going to buy supplies for the Passover meal. So for these reasons, I do not believe this is the Passover feast. So if it's not the Passover, what is it? And as I said, I want you to be a Berean. I want you to dig this, dig into this yourselves and, and discover for yourselves what this is. I'm going to share with you what I believe this to be. It was a supper 
to introduce a new celebration. You see, only the Jews were required to keep the Passover feast. Gentiles were not required to keep it. Now, we do, from time to time, celebrate as Gentiles a Passover feast just to, to kind of immerse ourselves in that culture to see what it's like. But we're not required to keep it. They were, under the law, required to keep it. So why would the Lord institute a meal that only the Jews were required to keep? This is something new. This is a new covenant, one that both Jew and Gentile alike could participate in. This celebration would have had its own meaning and symbolism. As Jesus broke the bread that night, it was symbolic of his body that he would lay down as a sacrifice. It was also a symbol that he is the bread of life, that all who follow him and all who are part of this new covenant will have eternal life in him. <clears throat> the cup represented his blood, a blood that would be poured out for the remission of sins, a blood that would not only forgive sin, but cleanse sin, wash it away, so that it would be forgotten as far as the east is from the west. And when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he wasn't saying, have a Passover meal in remembrance of me. He was saying, break, break bread, drink from the cup, and remember my sacrifice. Remember this evening. Remember what I am about to do for you. Remember that my sacrifice, the sacrifice of my body and blood, is symbolized in these elements that I am showing you new here tonight. It's the same thing we do every month when we celebrate communion. It's the same meal that the Lord had with his disciples. The early church would celebrate the breaking of bread when they came together. We see that in Acts chapter 2. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayer. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he said, Therefore, when you come together in one place, is it not to eat? the Lord's Supper. And so that's what I believe. I don't believe this is the Last Supper. I believe this is the Lord's Supper. Where they took bread, they broke it, they drank the wine, and they remembered what Jesus was about to give up for them. They remembered the sacrifice of Christ and what he was about to do so that they could have eternal life. It's the same thing, as I said, that we do once a month here as we remember him and his sacrifice. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. I believe we're celebrating exactly what the Lord and his disciples were celebrating on that night before he went to the cross. So the last part of verse 1 says, Jesus, knowing his hour had come, and that he would depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What I love about the Gospel of John... <clears throat> is that John provides a wealth of information for us in what it was like to spend these last few hours with Jesus Christ. Jesus' public ministry has come to an end. What we're going to see in the next few chapters before his arrest and crucifixion is this intimate time that he spent alone with his disciples. This is just Jesus and them. What a, what a, I mean, wouldn't you want, have wanted to be there for this? We can. I mean, we can read these chapters, 13 through 17, and see how, the, how Jesus interacted with his disciples, what Jesus' thoughts and words were in the last days and hours of his life. Now, he knows his ministry on this earth is about to come to an end. And so, <clears throat> he knows he's going to see his disciples again, but he's not going to see them again on this earth. I mean, after the resurrection, of course, he sees them, but he knows that once he leaves here, the next time he will really get to spend this kind of time with them is when they are in heaven together. So he knows he needs to encourage them to prepare them for the ministry that they are about to embark on, a ministry without him. <clears throat> if you remember, for the last three years, they've been doing ministry, but they've been doing it side by side with Jesus. And he's now preparing them to continue that ministry that he began without him. And as I said, this is very intimate time with them. It's like, you know, if you've ever lost a loved one and you're gathered around the bedside or you're gathered around in their home, I've, I've had the blessing, the complete blessing of sitting with people in the last stages of their life as their home and, and all the family comes in from everywhere and just spends that time with them. It's a time to say goodbye. And, and that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying goodbye because only Jesus at this point knows what's about to happen to him. 
although he's told them time and time and time again, right? I mean, how many of us need to be told time and time and time again? Moms, you know, raising kids. He's told them that he's going to be put to death, but they're unaware. They're really unaware of what's about to happen. They are unaware of what lies ahead, the cross. For Jesus, his whole ministry has been conducted in the shadow of the cross. But for his disciples, it seems like this is going to take them completely by surprise. And judging by their actions after the arrested crucifixion, we see that it really does take them by surprise, although it shouldn't. Jesus knows this. He knows that they're, going to, they're about to experience a shock. And if you've ever lost somebody very close to you, you know what that shock feels like. And so he's preparing them. He's cushioning this shock that they're about to have. Jesus loves them. John tells us that. He loves them to the end, to the uttermost, that word means. He's loved them throughout his ministry. He's going to love them on the cross. He's going to love them at the resurrection. And he'll love them for all eternity, to the uttermost. Now, it would be easy to love these guys if they were cute and cuddly, right? But they weren't. They were a group, they were a collection of oddballs, misfits, and outcasts. So when Jesus says he loves them, when Jesus says he loves us, he's saying, I love them, I love you in your mess. I love you even in your faults and weaknesses. I love you even though you're not perfect. I love you. And Jesus is speaking these words to those who aren't so easy to love. And sometimes we're not so easy to love either, are we? Jesus said, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? So we're to love with a different kind of love. We're to love like our Savior loved. Meaning we're to love each other in our mess, in our faults, in our failures, and in our weaknesses. Amen? So during the supper, verse 2, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. So Judas's heart is already open to what he is about to do. He's heard the words of Jesus through these past three years. He's seen the miracles that Jesus has performed. He has even been a part of all of this. He was part of the 70 that went out and healed people and cast out demons. So Judas not only saw the power of these miracles and the healings in Christ, he witnessed them himself. And yet his heart remained closed to the truth. It's possible, isn't it, to hear the truth, to pretend to know the truth, and still embrace a lie. We know it's possible because we've seen it. We know it's possible because before we got serious about Jesus Christ, for many of us, we were doing the same thing. Judas closed his heart to Jesus, but he opened it to Satan. Now maybe he did this unwittingly, but he did it nonetheless. It was a choice that he made. A choice that for him, for anyone who makes that choice, has eternal consequences. Verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the, feet of the, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knows the one who he was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So these verses 
really set the tone for us for what Jesus is about to do. He knows he's leaving. He wants to leave behind a legacy. And so he wants to impress upon them something that they will never forget. And so he rises from the table, and he prepares to wash their feet. Now you have to picture this, this setting. I know we all think of Leonardo da Vinci's picture of the table, and Jesus is in the center, and the disciples are all spread out on either side. It's a nice, neat little picture. fits nice in a picture frame, but it's really not the truth. They were in an upper room, and I was blessed when I was in Israel to be in an upper room. They, it's part of the tour. They take you to an upper room that are very clear that this was not the upper room, but that the meal Jesus would have had with his disciples in the upper room would have been very close to that area, and that this room was a particular type of room that would have been used in that day. So it gave you an idea of the room that they would have eaten in. And so this room was a very large open room, plenty big enough for the table and all the servants and the, and the disciples to sit and eat this meal. Now what they would have been sitting at was what the Romans call the triclinium, or a U-shaped table. Jesus, John, and Judas would have been on this side of the table, and Peter would have been on the other side of the table, and I'm going to tell you why in a few minutes. The other disciples would have been dispersed around the table, filling in the other spaces. Now these tables would have been low-lying, not the tables we're used to today. They would have sat pretty close to the floor because they didn't sit down and eat a meal. They kind of laid back, reclined, and ate a meal. Have you ever eaten so much you had to unbutton your pants at the end of the meal? Well, they started out that way. They just laid back and they said, I'm just going to eat until I burst and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to fall because I'm already laying down. So they're reclining on their one arm and then just reaching over and dipping their bread and eating with the others. A very relaxing, very intimate type of meal. And so as they're reclining there, enjoying their meal, Jesus begins to wash their feet. Now, in this culture, this job of washing the people's feet was reserved for the lowest servant in the house, the servant with the least amount of standing. He was the new guy. When you entered someone's home, the servant, this particular servant would come up to you. This was his job, to wash the dirt and the dung off your feet because they wore open shoed, open soled, not open, but you know what I mean, open-toed, that's the word I'm looking for, sandals. And so you're walking through these dusty streets of Jerusalem. Animals are walking through the streets. People are walking. So you can just imagine what they're walking in all day long. So this job was a disgusting job. Their feet are dusty and dirty from their trip. And so this was a very unpleasant task for the servant that was awarded this particular task. And Jesus now is doing that very task, the task that the lowest servant in the house would do. And he's going around this U-shaped table, and he finally gets all the way over to Peter, and Peter's watching all this very closely, and he's thinking to himself, man, I can't believe the rest of these guys are letting our Lord wash their feet. They just don't get it. Well, wait till he gets to me. I'm going to show these guys what respect really means. And so Jesus gets to Peter, and in Peter's mind, he's thinking, this is not a task suitable for our master. And so Peter says something much like the rest of us would say, really? Really, Jesus? You want to wash my feet? Do you have to wash my feet? He says, no, Lord, you will never wash my feet. And Peter always winds up eating his words, doesn't he? It wasn't about that he was too good to have his feet washed by Jesus. He thought that Jesus was just way too important to be washing anybody's feet. So Jesus, of course, says to him, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And so Jesus is teaching them a very important lesson here. Because Peter says to the Lord, then wash my hands and my, my, my head and everything. And Jesus responds by saying, those who have bathed, only they're clean. You only need to have your feet washed. And herein lies the lesson that he's teaching them, which also comes with a legacy. You're clean. Or you will be washed clean when I die on the cross for you and cleanse you of your sin. 
Not all of you, however, will be clean. Because Judas would choose to remain in his sin. He would choose to die in his sin. But notice what Jesus says, you're clean already. It's your feet that are dirty. And then he tells them, So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Then if I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And when we look at this whole scene of the feet washing, on the surface it looks as the lesson that Jesus is teaching them is one of, of a humble servant, to be a humble servant, right? To wash one another's feet. That's why in some churches today they actually have feet washing days which we're going to have next Sunday. No. So clean your feet before you get here. Yes, in, in a sense, Jesus is teaching them that lesson. But there's more to this. There's so much more to this. And if this is all we see, we're missing the heart of this. Jesus is leaving them a legacy by telling them to watch out for each other's walk. That's really what he's telling them. You've all been washed clean. You will all be washed clean by my blood on the cross. But as you are walking, as you continue to walk through this world, your feet are going to get dirty. The feet, your feet in those days, was, that was exposed to the dirt and the filth as you walked around the streets. And Jesus is teaching them to wash one another's feet, to help each other with this walk. Help each other stay undefiled by the things of this world, is what he's teaching them. By Jesus washing their feet, he's leaving behind a legacy of being a servant to one another, of course, in that sense of being a humble servant to one another, but also to watch each other, to hold each other accountable, to help each other walk this walk. You know, at our outreach last week, we pulled up to a very unpleasant scene there. Um... Very unpleasant indeed. First it started out a man and woman fighting with each other, and then two women were fighting with each other. And they're using language that I haven't heard in years. And considering where I work, that's saying a lot. We heard these things. You saw these things. You couldn't help it. It's not just our feet that comes in contact with the filth of this world, is it? It's our eyes and our ears. We're... We're susceptible to that filth as we walk through this world. Jesus knew that when he left, his disciples would be out there in the world ministering to people. They were going to see things and hear things as they walked through this filthy world. And he knew that there was going to be times when they would be threatened with being overwhelmed with what they were seeing and hearing. Overwhelmed, and he was even concerned that they may actually get pulled into it. So he tells them, help each other out. Help keep each other undefiled by the things of this world. And it's a great lesson for us. It's a lesson for us to stick together as brothers and sisters in the world, in this world, because this world that we live in is growing increasingly hostile toward Christianity. This world has no respect for what we believe or who we believe in. This world hates the things that we love. So we need to band together. We need to help each other walk this walk. Because we are in this together. We're all heading in the same direction. We're all on the same path. There's no one who's above another. There's no one above, or beyond rather, washing someone else's feet. And there's no one above having their feet washed among us. This is called accountability. We're called to be accountable to one another. How many of us would be open to a brother or sister pointing out the filth on our feet? We hate that word accountability, don't we? Because it means we have to be what? Accountable. We don't want to be accountable. We want to just sneak in and sneak out and no one knows what we're doing. We wind up in trouble when that happens. We wind up in deep trouble. Because what does Peter tell us? Our enemy is what? Like a what? Roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Have you ever watched those nature shows with lions? Lions are pretty lazy creatures. They lie, they just lay in the weeds and they watch. They watch for the weakest, they watch for the sick, 
They watch for the little ones who lag behind. And when the time comes, they are the ones they go after because they have to expend the least amount of energy to go after them. And so when we are doing that, when we're just walking through this world and we're getting our feet dirty, we're not being held accountable for any of it, we're just going on and doing our thing, we're kind of lagging behind, aren't we? We're kind of out there so the enemy is keeping an eye on us. And when he's ready, when the time is right, he pounces. And that's why it's so important for us to watch out for one another, for us to be accountable to one another, to say, listen, bro, your feet are getting dirty. But it'll also be able to hear those same words back to you and say, so are my feet dirty. Let's walk this walk together. Let's hold each other accountable. Jesus washes their feet and then tells them to do the same, to wash each other's feet. He doesn't hand them the basin of water and say, your feet stink, wash them. He washes them and then he tells us to do the same thing in turn. That's what we do as a body. We're not individuals. We are to a certain extent, but when we, as together, we're together as one body, one accord. We're together in all this, and we're to hold each other accountable, to help each other stay undefiled from the things around us. This is the legacy. This is the lesson that Jesus is teaching his disciples at night in the upper room, and it's the lesson and the legacy that he's teaching us and leaving for us. Verse 18. Do not speak... I did not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives, whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another, at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom you are speaking, He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing... Because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So, again, they're sitting around the triclinium. Jesus, John, and Judas are sitting at that one side. And Judas is actually sitting in the place of honor at the table. Peter's all the way around the other side. So he's gesturing across the table to John, asking him, ask the Lord, who is it? Who's going to betray him? And, you know, you can picture Peter sitting at the other end of the table, right? Peter probably purposely went there so that the Lord would say, Hey, let me honor you and bring you up to the head of the table. But Jesus gave that position to Judas. He put Judas in the place of honor, the one who was about to betray him. So John the disciple, John is the disciple that Jesus loved. John's about 18 or 19 years old as this supper is going on. And so he leans back on Jesus because they're reclining there. So he just simply leans back with his head on Jesus' chest. And he, and he says, who is it, Lord? Who's going to betray you? And Jesus tells him, the one whom I dip the bread and give, give it to. And I love what happens before this, though, because when Jesus tells them who someone's going to betray them, what do they do? They look around trying to figure out who it is. And they're at a loss. They're at a loss as to who it could be. Matthew tells us, that they were deeply grieved by this. And they ask him individually, Lord, is it I? Is it I? And what they're saying is, surely, Lord, you don't mean it's me. They were all dipping their bread at this point as they laid around that table. And so this really shows great growth in them. Spending three years with the Lord, there's got to be some growth that comes out of that, you would think, right? 
what I love about this is they weren't blaming one another. They weren't pointing the finger at each other. They realized the sin in their own hearts. They realized that the sin that they had in their own hearts, that they were capable of doing such a thing even themselves. So we can't even to this day say that Judas is responsible for the arrest, arrest and crucifixion of Jesus Christ because although he played a part in that, we have all played a part in that over the years. Jesus went willingly to the cross to die for our sin. We played just as much a part in this as Judas did. Judas is going to betray him this night. Now that word for betray means to give over into another's hands, to deliver or to surrender. And that's exactly what we do when we don't turn to Jesus Christ. When we don't turn to Jesus, we are surrendering. We are giving ourselves over into the hands of the enemy. Jesus came to free us from the grasp of Satan. But if we don't accept that free gift of salvation, if we don't accept the gift of salvation that Jesus offers us, then we remain in bondage. We remain under the control of Satan. And that betrays the very sacrifice that Jesus provided for us on the cross. As Jesus is about to go to the cross to deliver us from sin, Judas is about to deliver Jesus into the hands of the Jewish authorities. And John tells us that Satan at that point enters into Judas. Satan didn't take Judas against his will. Judas's heart was already fertile ground for Satan. Judas had already opened the window and allowed Satan access. The only thing left for a heart that's already devising wickedness is for someone to guide that heart into even more wickedness. And Judas turned out to be a very willing subject. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. Now it doesn't get any plainer than that in Scripture. Judas had been walking with the light of the world. John wrote in chapter 3 of this gospel, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil, John 3:19. Judas walked away from the light of the world into the darkness of the world. Judas had spent three years walking with the light. He never walked in the light. You know, when we look around today to some of the laws being passed by Congress, first we scratch our heads, but then you see the evil behind that. And it seems like all of a sudden all this evil is coming to light, doesn't it? I mean, making a law that it's okay to kill a baby outside the womb, that, I'm sorry, that is just plain evil. Some of the laws that have been passed are allowing things that before were practiced in the dark to be brought into the light of day. This didn't happen overnight. For years, in the darkness, these evil acts have been planned and plotted. And so as we're seeing these laws being introduced now, that's just a product of the evil coming to light. But it's a product of those evil plots and plans that have been going on for years behind the scenes. And now all of a sudden they're coming to light for the whole world to see. Jesus had this to say about those who plot evil. He said, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Those who do not walk in the light of Christ have a very difficult time of discerning the darkness in this world, don't they? They have a very difficult time seeing through those who are doing the will of Satan. It's under the guise of progressiveness, right? That's what we're calling it today, progressiveness. We're growing. We're becoming more tolerant. We're, they're actually saying that these things are like they're being touted as reform. And I'd have to agree to a certain extent with that statement. We are growing. We're growing in wickedness and deceit. We are becoming more tolerant. We're becoming more tolerant of sinful behavior. And listen, you can't see reformation if this is a reform. You can't see reformation without repentance. The only true progressiveness is that we progressively draw closer and closer to our Lord. The only change that matters is the change that occurs in our heart through Jesus Christ. Amen? 
The world, it seems, is pulling further and further and further away from God. And as they pull further and further away from Him, they're drawing closer and closer to Satan. They're walking away from the light and into the darkness, just as Judas did that night. Even as Christians, the enemy is always trying to draw us out of the light and just into the shadow. And I'm not going to take you out of the light and pull you right into the darkness, not on the first shot anyway. But if I can get you out of the light and into the shadow, then I have a chance. And that's how the enemy operates. He draws us into the shadows. Walking in the shadows, we can see the light right next to us, can't we? And so we begin to think in our mind, you know what? It's pretty cool. You know, I'm walking over here in the shadows, but anytime I want, I could just step over here into the light. But you know, the enemy's not happy with us just walking in the shadows, right? He wants us walking in the shadows, so at some point he can pull us in to the pit of darkness. Now for years, Judas had been walking in the shadows. It wasn't hard for Satan to just pull him into the pit of darkness then. You see, we may be able to see the light while we're walking in the shadow, but we're also walking on the edge of that pit of darkness the whole time. And we could think that we could just step back into the light anytime we want, but the danger always exists of us falling off the edge into that pit of darkness. James wrote the way we can avoid that from ever happening. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So submit to God in all that you do, and you will never step out of the light and into the shadows. And when the enemy discovers that he can't draw you into the shadow, therefore he has no chance of ever pulling you into a pit of darkness, he's going to flee from you. He's going to flee from you and find somebody else who's more willing to walk in the shadow. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why, can't I, why, can't, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Where Jesus was going, they could not follow him. Jesus was heading to the cross. And this was something that only Jesus could do. This was Jesus' alone. He was 100% God, 100% man, and so as 100% God, 100% man, he would take the sin of all mankind upon him, take it to the cross, and put it to death there. And while the sin of mankind was being put to death on the cross, his blood was washing it clean. <clears throat> that sin that was once stained crimson red is now white as wool. Only Jesus could do that. So the cross was something that he had to do alone. Now his disciples couldn't go to the cross with him, and he knew that. This was something that he had to do. <clears throat> but Jesus tells Peter, you will follow me later. And we talked last week about following the path of Jesus Christ and, and how difficult that is sometimes, how difficult the path is. And the Bible tells us, right, that the way to life is narrow. And few find it because the way is what? Difficult. It's hard. But the way to destruction is broad. And many go that way because it's easy. It's easy to walk in sin. It's a little harder to follow Jesus and do the right thing. After the sin of mankind is being paid in full, has been paid in full on the cross, the disciples of Jesus are then called to pick up their cross and follow him. And so to put it in very simple terms, Jesus is calling us to die to self 
and to be a living sacrifice for Him. Because that's what happens when we die to self. We become a living sacrifice for Jesus Christ. And matter of fact, that's what Paul wrote to the church in Rome. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So how do you and I become a living sacrifice? Well, the very next verse in Romans chapter 12 gives us some insight. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We're not to be conformed to this world. In other words, we're not to be like the world around us. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So how do we do that? The Word of God. God's Word ministered to our hearts by the Holy Spirit is the only power on this earth that can transform us from worldliness into true spirituality. Why does the author of the Bible put so much emphasis on transformation? Because for us to live our lives as Jesus has called us to live, to love one another as he has loved us, in the flesh, that's impossible. In the flesh, we don't even like each other sometimes. But when we're in the Word of God, and we're focused on Jesus Christ, our hearts and our minds are transformed by the power of His Word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And what flows from that transformation is love. Don't you see things differently? Don't you react differently after you've been in the Word of God? Of course we do. Because the Word of God acts as a lamp. It acts as a light. It illuminates the truth. And it dispels the darkness. It's through the Word that we learn to love one another. And it's through His Word that we learn to put that love into action. So Jesus left us a legacy. A heritage. And that legacy is one of love. By our love for one another, by our love for others, the world will know that we are his disciples. When we consider the setting in which Jesus is speaking these words, we, we can then fully appreciate the impact of this. These are among the very last words that Jesus will speak to his disciples here on this earth. You know, after we lose a loved one, don't those memories... You know, I, I was blessed to do a memorial for Kurt's mom yesterday, and, and we're blessed to have his family here with us this morning. But it's those pictures, newspaper clippings, all those kinds of things that, that we may see as junk because we weren't involved in them at the time, but after we lose a loved one, they become cherished memories. You know, I found myself even saving some of the texts that my son Nick had had sent out for that very same reason. I mean, these were some of the last words that, that he spoke, that he wrote. And I wanted to re keep them. I want them to help me remember who he was. And these are some of the very last words, instructions, that Jesus would give to his disciples. And so they have immense importance for us. Jesus wants us to wash each other's feet. Not literally. Not literally. And we thank him for that. He wants us to remember to hold one another accountable, to help each other walk this walk. He wants us to remember to love one another as He loved us. He wants this to be part of His legacy, what He's left behind for us. And He wants us to remember Him this way. But He also wants the world to remember Him through us, through the love that we have for them, the love of Christ that we have for them. Have you ever considered the legacy that you're leaving behind? I remember a pastor who I know pretty well who's very near retirement from his job as a corrections officer, a very good job. And the, so the dilemma that he faced was that the church he was pastoring was growing and he could no longer work full-time and care for the needs of a full-time church. So he goes to our pastor Lloyd and he, and he tells him that his plan is to leave the ministry, finish out his last year or so on the job, and retire from that job. And so Lloyd asks him a simple question. What do you want your legacy to be? What do you want people to remember about you when you die? And he thought about that really hard over that weekend. And when Monday came along, he went in and resigned from his job and went into full-time ministry. So I ask you this morning the very same question. What do you want to be remembered for?
What do you want your legacy to be? There's no greater legacy than the legacy of love, is there? To love others the way Jesus loved us. Peter's response was to all this was that, Lord, I love you so much that I would lay down my life for you. Jesus isn't asking him to lay down his life physically. He's asking all of us to give up our lives, to put, our, to put the old man to death. Jesus is asking Peter and all of us to die to self, to be humble, to be humble and loving servants, to love one another, to help each other walk this walk, to keep each other out of the shadows and away from the pit of darkness. We show our love for one another by caring for each other's walk. I mean, when was the last time we actually asked some... Well, we ask people all the time, how are you doing? And what is our Christian response? Fine. I'm fine. We could just as easily change the name to the Church of the Fine People. We're fine. None of us have a problem. None of us have issues. None of us are struggling in our walks. It's amazing how well-adjusted and how amazing we all are. We're all struggling. We're all dealing with something. And so when we ask somebody how you are, don't stop until you really find out how they are. You ever have a friend who just had that gift, that knack, to ask you how you are, and then before you're done, you've just laid out your whole life in front of them? Well, here's what's important about that. It's important to share, right? The Bible tells us to confess our sins one to another, right? But here's the important part. If you, wanna, if you want a friend, be a friend. If you want people to share their, their struggles with you, don't take those struggles and then go broadcast them all over creation. Be a friend. Help them walk that walk. And keep what's being shared with you between you and the person sharing it. Amen? Jesus has called us to love one another. It's not very loving to work with a friend, work with a brother or sister, and then go talk behind their back about what's going on in their lives. The legacy that he's left before us is one of love, and that is what our legacy is to be for those around us, love. Amen? Please stand. Lord, we love that you love us. We love that you loved us first, Lord, while we were still in our mess. And Lord, that you continue to love us even as we continue in our mess. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you, Lord, that we are growing in our knowledge of you and our love for you. And Lord, as, as we daily grow in this walk, I pray that we come alongside each other to help each other through these times, especially through the difficult times we live in today. And Lord, I pray that each of us would continue to grow, Lord, continue to grow closer to you. Because Lord, the closer we grow to you, the further we get from the enemy. The more we dig into your word, the less chance of us being in sin. Lord, we are not sinless and will not be sinless until we stand before you in heaven and are glorified. But Lord, we can certainly walk this walk to the point where we sin less and less and less. And that only comes through the knowledge of your word and the intimate relationship that we have with you. So Lord, may each one in this room develop that intimate relationship and walk closer to you than ever before. We ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.